Have you ever considered the amount, the sheer volume of questions that Jesus would have been peppered with all of the time throughout his ministry. Do you ever feel like you're answering a thousand questions, like you're in a, you're in a conversation, you know, and, you, and you're just getting peppered with questions. You're like, whoa, 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 what is this? A thousand questions? Can you imagine being the son of God? Can you imagine being the, the resource of all truth and knowledge and the questions that might come at you? Jesus was constantly being asked questions. By my count, and I don't presume that my count is is exact by any means, but by my count in the Gospels, I can find about 130 questions that are for the most part deep and significant questions about real life issues and about eternity that Jesus was asked. Now, of course, he was asked many more questions, I'm sure, than the ones that are recorded in the Gospels, but I can find about 130. Some of those questions were genuine, I mean, truth-seeking kinds of questions where people really did want to know the weighty matters and the things that were important and eternal. Others of them were more questions that were sort of complaints instead of questions, kind of from disgruntled disciples or others. Have you ever done that, by the way, in a relationship? Have you ever asked a question, which really wasn't a question, it was more of a complaint formed as a question so that it didn't come across so much as a complaint? You see that a fair amount as well when you, uh, when you read through the Gospels. Sometimes the questions that Jesus was asked were verbal traps. They were really not intended to get information, but they were intended to trap him in his speech and put him in conflict with the law or with Moses or, or with uh, something that God had previously revealed. And so these questions come one after another after another to Jesus. One of the questions that you see that presents itself as a complaint comes from Martha. Uh, in the Gospels, where Martha and her sister Mary are preparing a meal for Jesus. Do you all remember this? All of the Marthas in the room know this moment, right? Because Mary, her sister, is just at the feet of Jesus, worshiping, and it's having a wonderful time. And Martha's working in the kitchen, trying to prepare the meal, and she's tired, and she's grumpy. And she comes to Jesus, and she says, do you not care that my sister is not going to help me prepare the meal? That's the question she's asking. But really, it's more of a criticism of Jesus, Aren't you going to do something about this? It's similar to the questions that the disciples asked once. I think it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew where they're on the boat in the, on the Sea of Galilee and there's a storm and Jesus is sleeping in the, in the hold of the boat and they wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're about to drown? Do you not see what's happening? You ever ask Jesus questions like the disciples or like Martha? Like, Lord, what are you doing? Why don't you, why don't you do something about this situation? Don't you care what's going on in my life? Jesus was asked those questions rather frequently. One time, John the Baptist asked a question of Jesus. He sent it through some emissaries. He was in jail. He couldn't ask personally. So he sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus this question. John's question was one that revealed maybe a a tinge of doubt, but certainly one that was looking for confirmation of who Jesus was. His question was this, are you the one that was to come? Or should we look for another? He just wanted to know for sure. It's a good question to ask. Sometimes Jesus was asked questions by religious rulers. 
um, you know one of the most famous questions that was asked in the Gospels. It's recorded in John chapter number three. Do you remember it? Jesus is visited by Nicodemus at night. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And do you remember the question that Nicodemus asked? Very childlike question. You must be born again, Jesus says. And Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? Being born again? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, that's his childlike way of saying, what in the world do you mean by being born again? Jesus was once asked a similar question by Pilate. On that, on that morning when Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate is determining whether or not he'll condemn him to death or set him free, and Jesus speaks to Pilate, the Roman governor, about truth. And Pilate asks this really important question. Maybe some of you are asking this morning. I hope you are. What is truth? He wanted to know what is truth. And then I mentioned that sometimes Jesus was asked questions by people who simply wanted to trip him up. They were simply trying to entangle him in his words. This happened in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus is asked a question by a disciple about eternal life. Not a disciple, I should say a Pharisee. About eternal life. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And another time in our text in Matthew chapter number 22 where Jesus is asked a question about the commandments. What is the greatest commandment in the law? All kinds of questions. And so today we're going to see Jesus answer, maybe more true to say hear Jesus answer, we're going to hear Jesus answer to this question, what is the greatest commandment? So let me welcome you to week four. This is week four of five where we're thinking together about this idea of thriving and I'm glad that you're here. Would you do me a favor, help me, turn to your neighbor, wake them up if they're asleep and tell them I want to thrive. Go ahead and tell them I want to thrive I don't want to survive, I want to thrive. And we've been talking about the difference in those two, thriving versus surviving. Thriving is when there is a flourishing in my life, when there's fruit in my life, when we're living like Jesus promised we could live, that abundant life, that life full of joy, full of purpose, full of meaning for the kingdom of God and to the glory of Jesus. We want to live that kind of life and not just survive until the day that we go to heaven. Over the last four Sundays, we have noted, I should say over the last three Sundays, we've noted four things that are necessary to thrive as a disciple of Jesus. I'm going to remind you of them because repetition is good for learning and we want to build line upon line, precept upon precept. So let me remind you quickly, over the last few weeks, we've talked about these facts to be to thrive as a disciple of Christ, I must be devoted to Jesus. Are you? I must be devoted to Jesus. It means that I savor the things that be of God. That's Matthew 16. We learned it. That we need to align our thinking with the thinking of God. Number two, to thrive as a disciple, we must die to ourselves. Matthew 16, Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen, Jesus is not a nice add-on to your life. Jesus didn't come so you could be a Christianized version of what you've always been. He came to radically change your life forever. And if you want to be his disciple, you deny yourself and you follow him. That leads you into a different life. If I want to be a disciple thriving in my relationship with Christ, I need to grow as a witness for Christ. I can't be indifferent to the mission of the kingdom. I can't say souls don't matter to me. People don't matter to me. I'll never tell anyone about Jesus. 
I need to grow as a witness. I need to care about that if I'm going to be a disciple. Number four, we learned last week that in order to thrive as a disciple of Christ, I must embrace a lifestyle of servanthood. i got to be a servant. I must long to serve others, Matthew 20. Jesus said, who will be the greatest among you? Let that person become your servant. And so today we're going to talk about this greatest commandment uh, as Jesus is asked and he answers the question, what is the great commandment? I'm in Matthew chapter 22. You follow along as I read. I'm going to begin in verse number 34. Matthew 22, verse 34. The Bible says, but when the Pharisees had heard that he, Jesus, had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered together. And then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, tempting him or testing him and saying, Master, which is the great or the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and the great commandment. The second, he goes on to say in verse 39, is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments, says Jesus, hang or depend all of the law and the prophets. What's the great commandment? Love God and love others. I want you to write this down. It is our thrive principle for the day. It's simply this, that to thrive as a disciple of Jesus, I must grow in love for God and others. If I am to thrive as a disciple of Jesus, I must grow in love for God and others. Now, I mentioned to you that Jesus was oftentimes being peppered with question after question after question. And this question in chapter number 22 of Matthew is in fact the last of a series of questions that Jesus is being asked that are intended, as they often were, to entrap him. If you go back to verse 15, Matthew 22 and verse 15, you'll see the first of these questions in this chapter. In verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went and took counsel about how they might entangle him in his talk. You see the purpose? They're not asking to get information. They're asking because they want to trip Jesus up. And so they're, they're conspiring. What can we ask him? How can we confuse him? Verse number 16 So they sent out to him their disciples, that's the disciples of the Pharisees, with the Herodians. There's also, as we read a moment ago, the Sadducees, all these different groups sending people to ask Jesus these questions to entrap him. And they ask him, verse number 16, this question, Master, we know that you are true and that you teach the way of God in truth. Neither neither do you care for any man, nor do you regard the person of any man. Now, by the way, they're just heaping flattery on him. Oh, we know that you're a good teacher. We know that you speak for God. And we know that you don't speak to please men. You only want to please God. By the way, whenever anybody begins a conversation with all that kind of flattery, just get ready because they're getting ready to lower the boom, probably. So they're heaping flattery on him. They're not true compliments. They heap flattery on him. And then they ask him a question to confuse him. So what do you think they ask? Should we pay tribute to Caesar? The question is, should we pay taxes? We're citizens of heaven. We are sons of Abraham, sons of God, yet we're under the dominion, the occupation of the Romans. Should we pay 
our taxes? And you know the answer, most of you do. He says, uh, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. And the Bible says in verse number 22 that they, they hear his answer and they marvel at that. And so they leave him. They don't ask him any more questions. Verse number 23, another question comes. Verse 23 says, the same day there came unto him the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are not the Pharisees. They're a similar group. They're religious leaders, experts in the law. But the Sadducees are are more elite. The Pharisee is the common man's religious leader. The Sadducees are the more wealthy, aristocratic leaders. They're the elite spiritual leaders. There's fewer of them, and they're more aloof, if you can imagine, even than the Pharisees. The Bible says in verse number 23 that they come to ask him a question, these are the Sadducees which say there is no resurrection. Now, the Sadducees did not believe in eternal life. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They they believed, the Sadducees believed, that when you die, you're dead. And you're, you're like a dog. You just go to the grave, you rot. There's nothing after this life. Those were the Sadducees. And because they didn't believe there was life after death, that's why they were so sad. Do you see? You'll never forget that now. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they come asking a question which reflects that lack of belief. They spin a tale which is really mocking the idea of life after death. Verse 24, here's the question. Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up children unto his brother. They're referring to leveret marriage under the law of Moses. It's absolutely true. The law of Moses said if a man marries a wife and then he dies and they don't have a son, then it is the responsibility of his brother, her brother-in-law, to marry her and raise up a son, to, to have a son with her so that his brother's family name would continue on. It's called the leveret law of, or the law of leveret marriage. And, and the son that would be born to that brother-in-law and the widow, the son that would be born to, to them would be considered the son of the deceased, the actual son of the one who had died. Well, they say, well, this is what Moses commanded us in the law, but we, we knew a man or a woman who married a man and then he died and so his brother came and fulfilled the leveret law and then he died. And then they had a third brother and he came and married that woman and then he died, and they had a fourth brother, and he married, and he died, and fifth brother, sixth brother, and to the seventh brother. Now, I just got to say, if I'm brother seven, I'm not following through. I'm not doing it, right? Because all everybody who marries this woman dies. This is a black widow. <laughs> and, and so everybody that marries her dies, and they said, but she had seven husbands, and then she died. And then they asked this question. So, in, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? And Jesus' answer is, you're so stupid. I'm kidding, it's not that exactly. But it is in the next verse, he says, you do err not knowing the scriptures. He said, that's a dumb question. If you read the Bible, you'd understand that heaven is different than the earth. If you're glad heaven's different than earth, shout amen. So heaven's different than earth, and you don't need to wonder or worry about marriage in heaven. Well, he answers that question. Verse 33 says, when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he shut the mouths of the Sadducees, then they came. They sent their guy. So they're just coming one after another with these questions. And so we read the text, verse number 35. This lawyer, this Pharisee, this scribe came and asked him a question, tempting him, testing him, Master, which 
is the great commandment. Now, by the way, you should know that this was not an uncommon debate, an uncommon question in that day. In fact, it was a common question. The religious leaders, the different disciples of the different groups of the Pharisees, the different schools of the Pharisees took different points of view on some theological issues. They had different perspectives and they would, they would argue back and forth. And so one of the questions that they would argue about was this question of the law, the commandments from God. Which one was the greatest? And they wouldn't only wonder and discuss which was the greatest law in the commandment specifically. They would also debate about which was the greatest form in which the law came. So one of their debates would be, and perhaps this was what uh, this uh, lawyer was alluding to, they would fight or argue about is the law of Moses greater? That's the Pentateuch, the books of, of, uh, of Moses, first five books of the Bible. Is the written law the greatest? Or is the oral law the greatest? The, the teachings of the rabbis, much more voluminous, is that the greater of the commands? What God wrote down through Moses or what the rabbis have said? They would argue back and forth about that. They would also argue about questions of moral law versus ceremonial law. Which does God care more about? Laws such as thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. Moral law or ceremonial law. Law, you shall offer this sacrifice on this day and honor this festival. Which does God care the most about? They would argue about that back and forth. They would also argue about which was more important, the affirmative commands, the thou shalts, or the negative commands, the thou shalt nots. Does one of those take precedence over the other. Do you see these arguments back and forth, back and forth, all the time, back and forth, just going? This happens in church, by the way, all the time, even until today, where people in churches sit around arguing the finer points of their theological perspective. Nothing wrong with it. In fact, it's a good exercise, a good intellectual and spiritual exercise. But here's what happens when we debate too much about how many angels can dance upon the head of a pen or some other issue of greater or lesser importance, and we miss ultimately the mission of the kingdom, then we have failed as a church. Because remember, nothing matters more than the mission. One of the things we've always tried to do here at Brookstone is to say, we want to have good theology and preach absolute truth and stay with the book and, and focus on, on uh, the truths of the gospel, but we never want to get so in, involved in the debate that we miss leading people to Jesus Christ and discipling them in their faith. Well, they were totally off because they were so focused on these debates. And so they're asking Jesus this question. You weigh in on this. What is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds with two commands from the moral law. Number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Matthew records that's the end of the conversation. Matthew doesn't tell us how the lawyer that asked the question, how he responded. We don't, we don't know from Matthew what he said to that. But thank God for Mark. Because Mark tells us how he responded. I want to show it to you. Hold your finger in Matthew 22. Go to Mark. It's the next book in your Bible. Go to Mark chapter 12. And Mark tells us about this conversation and how he responded. 
Look at Mark chapter 12. This is in the same conversation, simply Mark's recording of it. They ask the question about the, should we pay tax? And then they ask the question about the woman married to seven brothers. And then it comes in verse number 28 to this question of what is the greatest command. And Jesus responds as Mark records, verse 29 and 30, 31. Love the Lord your God and love others. And here's the response of the, of the lawyer in verse 32. And the scribe said unto him, well, master, you have said the truth. You have spoken truthfully. For there is but one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all of our heart and with all of our understanding and with all of our strength and to love his neighbor as himself. Well, this is more, more important, greater than the whole system of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus said to him in verse 34, when he saw that he had answered discreetly or wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Wow. Listen carefully. Skeptics oftentimes come asking questions, and that's good because God can handle your questions. But the true one who wants an answer will listen to the response of our Lord. Be a skeptic. Ask the questions. But when God answers the questions, then respond. Let the truth of God settle into your heart. And don't ask a question just for the sake of asking another silly question. This guy said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus told him, and he said, that's the truth, man. He said, you're close. Well, back to Matthew chapter number 22. We know what Jesus' answer to the question was. Write it down. We are commanded. We are commanded to love God supremely. We are commanded to love God supremely. This is a command that God gave to the Jews. It is a command which extends to us. It ought to be our response that we love the Lord our God supremely as well. And when Jesus is asked this question and he answers it in verse number 37, back in Matthew 22, he's quoting directly from Deuteronomy chapter number 6. And I want to ask you to turn back to Deuteronomy. I hope you'll turn with me because I want to show you something really important in Deuteronomy. Go back there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Fifth book of your Bible. Go to Deuteronomy chapter number 6. Here is where Christ quotes from in his answer. Many of you will know this, that Deuteronomy chapter number 6, verses 4 and 5, contain... What I have often taught you is the foundation of everything Judeo-Christian. It is the declaration of monotheism that there are not many gods as the pagans believe, that we are not God as the New Agers believe, but there is one God and he is the Lord. It is the declaration that there is one God. And it is also the instruction of how we are to respond to that one true God. It's called the great Shema. Because verse number four begins with the Hebrew word Shema, which is translated in your English Bible, hear, hear, O Israel. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. That's the basis of truth. That's the basis of monotheism. That is the identifying of who God really is. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord our God is one 
Lord. Now here's Jesus' quote from Matthew 22, quoting Deuteronomy 6 and verse number 5, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Now I want you to notice something that's incredibly important in this discussion. If y'all are listening, both campuses, shout amen. Don't miss this. When you read this command that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, here's what we understand. That this love to which we are commanded is familial love. It is love that is rooted in relationship. And it thrives in intimacy. It is not, hear me, it is not a cold command from a distant deity which says, you better love me or I'll squash you. It is a God with whom we have a relationship. And as a result of that relationship, he has commanded us to love him. Look at verse number four again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one Lord. Now, I left something out in that reading of the verse, which is incredibly important. He didn't didn't just say, the Lord is one Lord. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our Lord, our God, is one Lord. We have a relationship with him. He has made himself known to us. What the Jews would have said is he is our God because he revealed himself to our father, Abraham, and Abraham followed this God, and now we know him because we are Abraham's sons. What we say is not only are we the sons of Abraham by faith, but we have come to know him through the work of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we are in relationship with God Almighty. The Lord is our Lord. Do you understand? It's like that old hymn, this is my story, this is my song, it is my Lord who has redeemed me. He says we're in relationship with him, he is our Lord. If you go back up to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 1, he talks in that verse about the fact that you are entering into a land of promise. Look at verse 1, now these are the commandments, the statutes and the judgments which which I've been uh, commanded to teach you. That you might do them, where? In the land, whether you are going to possess it. Well, what land is that? It's the promised land. It's the land of Canaan that they have been invited into. And when you consider that they're going into this land of promise, you also have to remember that they have been delivered from 400 years of Egyptian bondage. God has rescued them, delivered them out by mighty hand, and now he's taking them into this land of promise. Here's what he says. I am your God by my special revelation to you. I have delivered you, and I am taking you into a better land. Therefore, you should love me with all your heart. Y'all with me? You should love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it's not just that. It's not just that I delivered you, revealed myself to you, and I'm taking you to this blessed land. He says in verse number two, look at it that you may fear the Lord your God and keep all his statutes and commandments which I commanded you, and not only you, but your son and your son's sons all the days uh, that your days may be prolonged upon the earth or prolonged in the land. So he says, I'm a generational God for you. He says in this passage, I was your father's God, and I'm your God, and I'm gonna be your son's God. And I'm going to be your grandson's God. 
And because I have revealed myself to you, I have delivered you, I'm bringing you into a new life, and I'm going to be faithful to you through the generations, you ought to love me with everything that's in you. And he doesn't just say that. But look at the next verse. He says in verse number three that I'm going to bless your life. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with you, that you may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised you. In the land that flows with milk and honey. Are y'all tracking with me? This is not a cold command from a distant God who's never engaged with them, who looks down upon them from some elevated throne in the stars and, and plays the game of the mythological Greeks and Roman gods. This is not a God of the, of the Canaanites who's made of marble or carved from wood. This is the Lord God of eternity who made all things, who revealed himself to them, who adopted them as his kids, who re re redeemed them from bondage, who promised them a land, who said, I'll be God with you through the generations, who will lead you into a new life and bless you in that life, and you should love me because I have done these things for you. You have been commanded to love this God. And what, what Moses is saying to them, what God is saying through Moses, is that I have done so much for you. You should love me. And isn't this what 1 John says? 1 John chapter 4, I believe, verse 19. It says, we love him because he first loved us. How could I do anything but love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength when he has done so much for me? You and I have been commanded today to love God supremely with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. It means with our inner man, the center of our being, with all that we are, the soul means with my feelings and my personality and my spirit, with my mind and my strength means the force of my person, the, all the force that I have in my heart and in my mind intellectually. I should love God with all that I am. And so how do you know? How do you know what that looks like? How do you measure that? God, am I loving you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? How can I... How can I measure that? Uh, are you with me in Deuteronomy 6? If you are, just turn a couple of pages to Deuteronomy chapter number 10. Moses gives us a little bit of insight. Deuteronomy 10, verse number 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all of his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. How do I measure if my love for God is growing? I think Moses' formula gives us some measuring points. Number one, I know that I am loving God when I am growing in the fear of the Lord. Now let me be clear to say to you that the fear of the Lord does not mean that we run away from him in terror. He's not terrorizing us. He's not a monster. But it means that we bow before him in humble awe and adoration. We have a reverence for him which is produced 
by our nearness, our proximity to him in relationship. And the nearer we are to him, the lower we want to go because we fear him. Not afraid that he's going to squash us, but wonderful he is. And in awe-inspired adoration, we bow before him. We fear the Lord. Number two, we walk in his ways. To love the Lord means that I want to be like him. I want to put my feet in his footsteps. I want to walk with him. If I, if I love him, I want to walk with him. If, if I'm loving him, I'm not going to want to walk away from him. I'm going to want to walk in his ways. Number three, it means that we love him. The word means to desire him. We desire his pleasure. We desire his presence. We, we desire him. Number four, it means we serve him. We, we do his will. We carry out his work. If I'm, if I'm loving him with all of my heart, then what he wants matters. His work is important to me. I want to serve him. And number five, if we're loving him, then we're going to want to keep his commandments. We, we want to obey him. We want to do what he says to do. Why? Because we know his commandments are for our good. That's what verse 13 says. That you would keep the commandments which I command thee this day for thy good. If I love him, I want to keep his commandments. It's like, if you've raised teenagers, you've heard this. I heard it when our kids were teenagers at least a couple of times. Teenagers say the smartest things to their parents. They sometimes say things like, if you love me, you just let me do what I want to do. It's my life. Let me make my own mistakes. I'll figure it out. It's good for me. I don't want to, don't, don't put all your rules. If you love me, you wouldn't give me so many rules. And if you're a parent worth your salt, you said something like this. The dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Because my commands, my rules for you are not because I don't love you. They are because I do love you. And I make them for your good. And then a parent might have said, and if you loved me, you would want to keep the commands. Isn't this what Jesus said in the Gospel of John? If you love me, keep my commandments. I can't say I love him if I live every day to disobey him. And so, here's a principle for you. That a thriving disciple is one who is growing in reverent love, in willing service, and in humble obedience to Christ. That's what I want to be. Just one who loves the Lord because he's loved me so well. And so therefore, I'm growing in my love for him, my willing service, and in humble obedience. Now, this is a work of the Spirit. It is the process of sanctification. And it is motivated by the fact that he loved us so much. We'll go back to Matthew chapter number 22. Let me wrap up with the second command that Jesus mentioned in response to this question. Master, what is the great commandment? Chapter 22, verse 34, 35. What's the great commandment? And Jesus answers this question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then verse number 39, he says, now the second, so he doesn't just stop with the first. He says, the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're commanded to love God supremely. Number two, write it down. We are commanded to love our neighbor as ourself. We're commanded to love our neighbor as ourself. Now this point it should, should have been clear to the, the scribe and based on Mark's text, I believe it was. 
And it ought to be clear to us by now that what matters the most to Jesus is not that you keep all the religious rules, is not that you offer all the right sacrifices, but what matters the most to Jesus is a matter of the heart, that you love him and you love others. That's what matters. And so Jesus said, I want you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. He didn't make that up, just like with the first command when he quoted from Deuteronomy 6. In this command, he's quoting again from the law from Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where God says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. For I am the Lord. This is the command that we've been given. Now, a neighbor, by definition, is one who is near. That's what it means. One who is near. And so it has something to do with proximity, right? So I, I, might, um, I might look over to my right over here, and I, I could pick out somebody on the far right, and I could say, there's John. And John is not sitting that close to Ken. They're not really neighbors in the service today. Or those of us in Weaverville aren't really neighbor to the people, uh, those of you there at the East Campus. We're not close in proximity. It, it could mean um, a couple sitting side by side or a father and son. So I can look at Mike and Michael and go, they're neighbors. They're sitting shoulder to shoulder today. It means to be one who is near you, okay? Um, it certainly means one with that we are in relationship with in some way. But Jesus taught us something about this neighbor thing in the parable of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, not Sermon on the Mount, but the parable of the Good Samaritan. In fact, I want to show it to you. Would you mind to turn again uh, just one more time? Go from Matthew chapter number 22 over to Luke chapter number 10. And I want you, I want you to see just quickly in the parable of the Good Samaritan what Jesus said about this idea of neighbor. And by the way, in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan is spoken on a different occasion, but in response to the same question that Jesus is being asked about what's the greatest command. In Luke 10, a lawyer comes to him and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what does the law say? The lawyer said, well, the law says, love God and love my neighbor. And Jesus said, you're right, go do it. And then the lawyer, wanting to justify himself in Luke 10, says, who then is my neighbor? Here's a, if y'all are listening, shout amen. Okay, I know I need to love God and I need to love my neighbor, but who do I really have to love? Who's my neighbor? And so Jesus answers the question with the parable of the, sermon, or the, parable of the Good Samaritan. And so in this parable of the Good Samaritan, you know the story. man's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets robbed. He's stripped naked. All of his things are taken. He's thrown in the ditch, left for dead. A couple of people walk by him, a priest and a Levite. They do nothing. Then a Good Samaritan comes. The Good Samaritan, verse number 33, comes, picks him up, pours in uh, oil and wine into his wounds, puts him on his own beast, takes him to the inn, pays the innkeeper, take care of him. Um, and then Jesus asks the question in verse 36. Now, which of these would you say was neighbor to him that fell among thieves? And he said, well, I assume he that showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go do likewise. Okay. So it's a question of who's my neighbor. Two principles that emerge. Number one is, if you're trying to decide who it is that you and I should love as ourselves, we should love the neighbor that God puts in front of us. 
whoever that is. It may not be my next door neighbor necessarily, but it's somebody that God puts in front of me. The point is that this man was going down the path and God allowed his path to cross the place where this man had been robbed and left for dead in the ditch. God put this man in front of the Samaritan. And you and I should love the one that God puts in front of us. God is vitally interested in us loving those people that he creates divine appointments with. Secondly, in this parable, the principle emerges that we choose whom we go near. We choose our neighbors. We choose the ones that we will endear ourselves to or that we will go near to. Verse number 34, he went to him. The Samaritan went to him and made himself to be his neighbor. Hear me, church. God is calling us to love the people in front of us, to go to people who need to be loved, the people who are near to us and the people to whom we make ourselves near and to love them as we love ourselves. That's what he's called us to. He's vitally interested that we love people who are like us and people who aren't like us. People who believe like we believe and people who don't believe like we believe. People who we agree with and people who we disagree with. If y'all are listening, shout amen. He has called us to love people who we agree with and people who we disagree with. God has called us to love our neighbor. And he says, Jesus says, it is the second greatest command. And didn't he model this so well? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world he gave. When we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us in sending Christ to die for us. Jesus said, no man Ever loved as much as this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends? He's modeled it well for us. So, love God and love others. Now, one last thought. You don't have to turn. John 13, mark it, go read it later. On the night of Jesus' arrest in the upper room, just before he's arrested and he will be crucified the next morning, Jesus took this command to love others up a notch. Did you know that? In John 13, he says... A new command I'm giving you. It's not the old command. Not the Leviticus command, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to give you a new command. And it's a new command because it's a new day with a new covenant and a new power with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Here's the new command. Love one another, not like like you love yourself, but love one another like I have loved you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, here's what he's saying. You take the love that you receive from me and you let it flow through you into the lives of others. And you love them like I have loved you. And I have to tell you that it's the fruit of the Spirit that accomplishes that. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And I confess to you today that I am not always a guy who does that. But I want to be. And I believe that to be a thriving disciple... This is necessary. Jim Dykes needs to grow in love for God and for others. And I'm guessing you do too. If you do, say amen. Amen. Thanks for not leaving me standing there all by myself. (laughs) Now maybe you're here on either campus and you would say, you know what, I have failed so miserably in this thing of loving God. I don't love God. I don't pay attention to God. I ignore God. Truth is, God has no influence, no place, no reference point in my life at all. And to love others, I can take them or leave them, quite honestly. If they love me, I'll love them back.
but that's about as deep as it gets. If that's you, I want to tell you what you need. You need the redemption of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to enable you to live out these commands. And that's available through the gospel and the grace of God.